Hello and welcome to Not To Get Political, the podcast where we delve into the world of politics. Wait, wait so, sorry, could you start that again just quickly? Yeah, sorry, sorry. Why? Because I burped at the oh, start. Sh- like, <laughs> you can definitely see me like burp like silently and I was just like, oh shit. We're going to keep that in. <laughs> What's happening in Palestine is so incredibly simple and so black and white. And I know people will be like, you need expertise, but you actually don't. And it's sometimes something that I'm conscious of with the content that I make, because intellectualizing this and making it a thing about showing off how clever you are and like knowing everything can lead people to believe that they don't have the ability to speak on it. Hello and welcome to Not To Get Political, the podcast where we delve into the world of politics and hope to remain unscathed. Today we are going to be discussing Israel and Palestine and joined with me today to discuss it is Chris Kunzler, TikTok content creator and research student at the University of Exeter. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. This is an absolute pleasure. This is the first ever podcast I've done, so apologies if I'm slightly awkward and such, but I'll just try my best, yeah, to talk about Israel and Palestine. So let's um, kind of start at the beginning with you. How did you get into learning about this topic? When I was 16, uh, for my A-levels, we had uh, one of the modules was on the Middle East, and I decided to read on Palestine by Noam Chomsky and Ilan Pape. And I had like no real idea of Israel and Palestine. I was thinking about this the other day and someone in the year above said the word Zionism when I was 16 and I was like, what does that mean? Uh, and after reading on Palestine, it kind of just went on and on from there. I got like uh, intensely interested in the Middle Eastern part of the A-level and then eventually went to university and haven't really stopped since. And just, I'm thoroughly interested in like First of all, Britain's relationship with the Middle East, but more generally politics of the Middle East. So regarding Israel and Palestine, how do we get to where we are today in the events that we're seeing at the moment? The answer to me is incredibly simple. You have this split where Israel does not want the Palestinians there, and this is a growing thing. Now, the Likud party that rules there has been... Uh, well, the Likud party that won the last election has been a thing since 1977. It believes in an ideology called revisionist Zionism, which is largely the idea that something has to be done about the Palestinian problem, that coexistence isn't really possible and settlement is the key. And because of this and the popularity of Likud, you start to reach this impasse. But the problem is, is Israel just doesn't really want the Palestinians there or their government is showing more and more and more that they don't. And this is a successive thing because settlement isn't specific to the right wing. It's gone on under every single uh, government since the 19, since 1967. And this is really the crux of the issue. If you look at any of the peace negotiations, the sticking points are always right of return and settlements. Israel doesn't really want to get rid of settlements. In fact, in 2018, they enshrined settlement as uh, a national value with the 2018 Jewish nation state law. So you're kind of at this impasse where Israel is a settler colony that takes the Palestinians' land constantly and that's why it feels like we're nowhere near peace, because this is just phasing, uh, fading away. So from my reading and understanding, the Israeli government and the Israeli people believe that they have a claim to the land where, where they are at the moment. They believe that that land is their land. Where does that belief come from? So, in a sense, there are kind of two ways that they viewed this. Initially, Labour Zionism saw settling Palestine through the lens of we have to be assimilated somewhere, and the only way to do this is through setting up our own state. However, the Likud party is much more interested in this biblical claim. This was always a thing and people knew that they had a historical link because it's undeniable that Jewish history is in the land. 
However, Likud are much more interested in that. The first Likud Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, never referred to the West Bank as the West Bank, choosing specifically Judea and Samaria, the biblical name, because that's probably where the historical kingdom of Judea was. And so they are much more interested in this biblical claim. However, a lot of Jewish people feel that they're indigenous to the land. And I've actually said before that I don't think Jewish people are indigenous to the land. And that's not to deny any of the link to the land. But what I would say is more, I don't believe that this claim constitutes the right to settle Palestine. I believe that ultimately this is something that happened 2,000 years ago. And this doesn't mean that Palestinians should be displaced in the here and now, because fundamentally that is what happened. There was a Jewish community in Palestine. I believe it was about 24,000 people in 1882. Uh, it may have been slightly earlier. However, the thing is, is that the European Zionists who came, they created something different. It's a European settler colonial project. But this link to the land is very important for Jewish people. And I, of course, appreciate it and understand it. Because, you know, you can see the history if you look at Israel. It's a very special place to all of the Abrahamic religions, not just Jewish people. But obviously Jewish people have a very special link to that land as well. So a term that you keep using, and I've heard other people use, is this term Zionist and Zionism. What is Zionism? So Zionism isn't really one thing. There are many different kinds of Zionism. I'd already mentioned revisionist Zionism. That's something that develops in about 1926, I believe, with a guy called Zayev Jabotinsky. However, Zionism more generally is the belief that Jewish people, the only way that they will ever be safe is by assimilating and through the creation of the state of Israel. And this wasn't necessarily always going to be in Palestine or historic Palestine. At first, they proposed the ideas of Uganda, but largely Zionism is a political movement that begins in the 1890s with a guy called Theodore Herzl. So Theodore Herzl is kind of one of the first most important figures in Zionism. He writes a book called Der Judenstaat in, I believe, 90, uh, 1896. And what it posits is that Jewish people must settle in Palestine. And then eventually this idea crystallizes more and more and more to become political Zionism, what we see now, the idea that Jewish people have a right to that land and that the people who live there already don't have a right independently to live there. Spiritualist Zionism is another form of Zionism that is worth speaking about, not because it actually gained much traction, but because it's something very different to what we see now. So there was a guy called Ahad Ham, who, or Asher Ginsberg, who believed that Palestine was a home for Jewish people and that settlement was wrong, but rebuilding a link and a community there that was distinctly Jewish was a good idea. But he didn't believe in settling it. And you can find this in a lot of people's work. Like Einstein was never really very pro-Israel and was much more because of the treatment of Palestinians. Okay. So what is the difference between, say, rejection of a Jewish state compared to, say, like um, a country like Saudi Arabia, for example, which could argue is a Muslim state. It's governed by Muslim values. How is that? How is a state like that allowed to exist? Yet a state like Israel isn't allowed to exist because of the links to Zionism. I think that Saudi Arabia is technically not an ethno state, which is the core difference between Israel and Saudi Arabia and a lot of other Muslim nations, because Muslim isn't like an ethnicity, whereas being Jewish is both a, a religious, ethno religion, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, so 
it's an ethno-religion and membership to the Jewish state is premised on being Jewish. This is something that they enshrined in law in 2018 and it privileges Jewish people. So that's the core issue. Obviously, Muslim people in Saudi Arabia would perhaps feel more comfortable than other religions, but it's, it's very different in that like you can become a Saudi national without being... You can be a Saudi citizen without being Saudi, basically. Whereas in Israel, it's a bit different, you know, and particularly Palestinian citizens of Israel are not treated very well because of the fact that they're Palestinian. And also, I think it's about the crystallization of apartheid as a value that has come with that, which is the problem with Israel. So when it's like, oh, it's a problem with the Jewish nation, it isn't. It's a problem much more with what the price of making that Jewish nation was, which was the displacement, ethnic cleansing and the continual genocide of the Palestinian people. So, you know, that that's what the problem is with the Jewish state. It's not the fact that it's Jewish, it's just what the cost of that was and also the brutality of maintaining what they want to do because, you know, uh, the apartheid has been something that goes has been going on for a very long time. Uh, there's a uh, an, an academic called Fayez Sayer who wrote in 1965 and used the term apartheid about Israel. It's something that emerged in that kind of time. Okay, so I've heard yourself and other sort of creators and other academics refer to uh, Israel as being an apartheid state. What do you mean by that? So Mahmoud Mamdani explains apartheid very simply, and he says that it's as two different legal systems for two different peoples, or multiple in the case of South Africa. Uh, basically, non-whites was the group of people, I guess. But in South Africa, you had civil law, which we all live under here in almost every Western country you live under. However, in the Bantustans, which are the tribal homelands in South Africa, they lived under customary law. They were limited in terms of freedom. They couldn't do the things that white people would do. And people will focus on the apartness of apartheid. But in my opinion, apartheid isn't just about racism. Apartheid was a system of exploitation set up for a reason in South Africa that was defined by economic interests of white people who were there. So in terms of Palestine, you kind of have three different varying degrees of apartheid. Now, in terms of being in the Gaza Strip, that is the most extreme because their Palestinians are almost entirely cut off from everyone else. It's not its own independent thing. It's occupied by the state of Israel. They control what goes in or out. In 2014 or the early 2010s, they were found to be able to control the amount of calories that Gazans or people living in the Gaza Strip were having. And this like general experience of apartheid there is also related to things like lower life expectancy in the Gaza Strip, higher infant mortality, and more generally, just a worse standard of life in spite of the fact that, you know, settlers and Israelis live incredibly close to the Gaza Strip. And then you find the West Bank, which has probably the more egregious or the way which people would actually be able to understand apartheid. So in Hebron, for example, the situation is ridiculous. You or Palestinians cannot use the same roads that settlers do. They live completely separately from them. A street called Shahuda or Shahada Street, I can't remember which, was closed and welded shut in 1994 in response to an Israeli who massacred Palestinians, 29 of them in a mosque, Baruch Goldstein, and then they responded to this. So that's where you would see it more like South Africa, where it really feels like, wow, this is keeping people separate and doing this in a certain kind of way. And also with the West Bank more generally, the limits on movement on everyone, the... Uh, fact that the IDF can, or the Israeli Occupational Forces, it's better to call them rather than the IDF, 
They can come into your house and just turn it into a military base. They have the right to detain Palestinians for six, mu uh, for six months without trial or anything, and they can keep extending that. Palestinians are frequently subject to torture that Israeli detainees would never experience. And then you have Israel proper, where it feels the most different to uh, South Africa. And by Israel proper, I mean what's within what we would call Israel as a state. Now... Here, people are often like, oh, well, there are Arab politicians, there are Arabs who drive buses, people love to reference that. But the thing about it is, is like, that 2018 Jewish nation state law, when you say that only Jewish people have the right to self-determination within a country that, you know, could maybe one day be binational or, you know, have both Palestinians and Israelis in, it's, it's just ridiculous. And... Moreover, you find the experience of Palestinians there rather bad. Like Ahmed Tipi is one of the most significant Israeli politicians who's Arab. And frequently they, uh, there was the IDF the other day were chanting death to Ahmed Tipi. Uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, the Minister of National Security in Israel, has called Ahmed Tipi a terrorist in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. And he gets away with it. Largely the experience of being Arab in, uh, inside Israel is still much worse than being an Israeli. So, you know, they are still discriminated against in a way where the law applies differently. And that's why I would say that it constitutes apartheid. Okay, that's really interesting. So kind of looking more at sort of Palestine and the various uh, issues that are going on in there, I want to talk about Hamas. How did Hamas came to be? So when I made a video about how Hamas came to be, I kind of made a mistake, which is where I said that Israel created Hamas. Israel did not create Hamas, and people are wrong to say this. But that's not because they didn't play a role in what happened with Hamas and like its success and its growth and such. Because Hamas is an offshoot of an organization called the Muslim Brotherhood, which is started in the 1920s in Egypt by a guy called Hassan al-Banar. And what happens with this is they're allowed to operate in the Gaza Strip by Israel. A couple of senior Israeli figures were saying that Israel wanted to play divide and rule because in the 1980s, the Palestinian Liberation Organization was the dominant thing. In 1974, the UN recognized them as the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. They were incredibly powerful in that they could... They represented not just Palestinians who live within Palestine, because people really forget this. There are a lot of Palestinians who live in camps in Lebanon who were expelled. They can see the lands that they were expelled from, or they're very close, but they can never even go back to Israel or the south of Lebanon. It's kind of tricky to be there unless you live there. So the PLO were very powerful at that time, and Israel kind of thought that playing divide and rule was a good idea, so they kind of let the Muslim Brotherhood operate in the Gaza Strip much more freely than they would if this was any other Palestinian organization. They started setting up mosques and, like, doing things locally. Is, is it just a charity? And why, sorry, just, sorry to interrupt, why were they um, more, say, liberal with the Muslim Brotherhood compared to other organizations? Um, because... The PLO were just so powerful at that time. The PLO were just really like this, you know, when you're recognized by the UN. And as well, in 1975, the UN actually recognized Zionism as a racist ideology. So the situation for Israel at that time was not necessarily so good. The Intifada was happening now. We get a lot of comments about people talking about Intifada we'll, as being. We'll, we'll mention that later. Okay, okay, we'll yeah, talk yeah. about that later. So at that time, the. 
But yeah, so at that time, the PLO were incredibly powerful. They were so much more powerful. And one of the ways that Israel thought that they would be able to limit them is by splitting the Palestinians, because the Gaza Strip is an important part of Palestine as well. A lot of the people who live there are actually refugees, though, from 1948 Palestine. But it's completely separate from the West Bank. Israel was meant to connect that during the Oslo Accords, but they never did. Uh, and they're separate. And so because of that, playing divide and rule means you have a split Palestinian population, you can damage the PLO, and it was seemingly like a good idea for Israel. However, right now, it's shown to be a terrible idea. Yeah. So obviously, we're all sort of talking about this at the moment in relation to the October 7th attacks, where that uh, it was the biggest um, case of Jewish people being murdered since since the Holocaust. Um, and basically the fallout from that has led to where we are. What are your thoughts on that and what's led to it? So human beings dying is a bad thing and killing other human beings is obviously a really bad thing. There's a reason that murder's illegal, you know. So of course people condemn the loss of civilian life, but the problem is, is that this isn't something that just happens in a vacuum, you know, and... The Labour MP who was expelled, his point was incredibly true, where he was like, I am striving for peace for both Palestinians and Israelis, because Palestinians have been kept in what many people would compare to a concentration camp or an open-air prison in the Gaza Strip. They're starved, they're deprived of things, and Israel has led disgusting bombing campaigns against them for years now. In 2014, they killed 2,000 people in the Gaza Strip, and they were mostly civilians. And this radicalizes a population. And the thing is, is people are never go going to let go to the of the idea of Palestine. And so you just have this situation where... Israel keeps provoking the Palestinians and then eventually it boils over into what we see on October the 7th because a lot of people don't really actually keep up with what's happening in Palestine. So this year, even before October 7th, we'd seen a lot of uh, killings in the West Bank. Some of these were done by the IDF, but quite a lot of them are just person-to-person -person murder by Israeli settlers, which people have really no idea about. So a guy called Elisha, Ma Elisha Yered killed a 19-year-old Palestinian called Kusai Mutan, or he was involved in the murder of. He got sentenced to house arrest, first of all, for a murder. Some Israeli significant politicians came and met the other guy who was involved in the murder in hospital, which uh, as an Israeli activist was like, why is this happening? Completely ridiculous. Politicians going and seeing someone who's a murderer. And actually, one of the Israeli politicians, Itamar Ben-Gavir, said that killing a Palestinian should get you a medal, basically. Uh, at that time. And so this has created an environment where Palestine was boiling all year, and it's been also inflamed by Al-Aqsa. You know, the op people forget that the operation was called Al-Aqsa Flood, because Israelis, there is a growing movement in Israel called the Temple Institute, and it is led by people whose ideology is, uh, you know, akin to what people want to say that Hamas, or like how people understand Hamas as being like deprived and evil. Yisrael Achiel, who is the chief rabbi of the Temple Institute, has spoken about making the Middle East like run red with blood and destroying every church and mosque the entire Middle East over. And this is what's causing the problem. These people want to destroy Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's a growing movement. It's not a conspiracy theory. Itamar Ben-Gavir had a photo in his house of Al-Aqsa being toppled, uh, Betzalel Smotrich, the Minister of Finance in Israel, has said things like, I would build uh, the Third Temple, because that's basically, it's a biblical movement that believes that the Third Temple 
or, or the Al-Aqsa was built, the Al-Aqsa mosque compound was built on top of the third temple. And because of this, they want to rebuild the temple. However, to do that, they have to destroy Al-Aqsa, which is incredibly sensitive because it's one of the three most holy sites in all of Islam. It means a lot to so many people. It's perhaps the most beautiful building in all of Palestine. And they've been provoking all year and they've been getting more and more aggressive with it. They've just been killing people with impunity. You have these settlers who are taking more and more land, lynching Palestinians. The amount of pogroms this year has been insane. Hawara had a pogrom. Uh, Tura Musaya had a pogrom. And there have been others over the past few years of Israeli settlers and civilians going and just attacking Palestinians freely. And it's kind of created a situation where what do the Palestinians do? This isn't me justifying what happened on October the 7th, but rather it's the explanation, unlike the hope of moving forward, is about not just ignoring why these things keep happening. You know, they're, they're not, as I said, they don't happen in a vacuum, you know? And it's not about like saying, I think killing people is a good thing. It's about saying, ultimately, we are currently in a scenario where it looks more and more likely that Palestinians are going to be expelled forcefully, because I don't know if you saw Israel circulated some documents on October the 13th, allegedly saying that they were planning to move the Palestinians to the Sinai. And so it's just boiled all year. And this is kind of the root of it. And so many people have never reported on these pogroms or spoken about what happens in the West Bank. And this is why you have a lot of ignorance with regards to it. Even the day before, on October the 6th, there was a pogrom in Hawara. They went and they smashed it up. And then like top like religious, really deeply religious Zionist settlers, politicians, all were like sat on a table in Hawara, like mocking Palestinians. And they've kind of provoked it all year. And these people are extremists as well. So it's like, that's how we got to where we are and why October the 7th, why, why it happened. You know, this year, it, it doesn't, like if you read like Middle East Eye and, well, I'd say mostly Middle East Eye have a lot of good reporting and Electronic Intifada and a few, plus 972 magazine, although there's some issues with the owner. Uh, they ran an article that was like, it's like 1948, as in how bad the ethnic cleansing was even before this, uh, before this kind of, it's before October the 7th, basically. And so it's just like, yeah, you have a scenario where you've let it boil. The government's become more extreme in Israel, more violent, which is saying something because they were already very violent. But yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a product of the, what's happened this year more generally to Palestinians. But surely if, if Hamas are looking at what's going on and they're looking at the response, surely they know that by committing these attacks, that is just going to play into the hands of the Israeli government and what they're saying about uh, Palestinians in general. So the violence that we're currently seeing in Palestine, these bombing campaigns, Hamas surely play a part in that happening, no? So, to be honest, there are people who are much more in tune or, like, know really what Hamas is up to. I personally really am basing all of the stuff off guesswork. I don't, like, look at any of their Telegram channels or, like, really research it. I don't speak Arabic. But what I will say is that my opinion was that they took the hostages under the belief that Israel might start bombing and then they would be able to say, look, we're doing a ceasefire, we've been humane to these hostages and blah, blah, blah. Obviously, very bad things happened on October the 7th. Uh, I, I, how those happened, whether because there are some reports that say there was massive fighting between Israel and Hamas fighters, but I'm honestly, definitely bad things happened. It's categorically true. Um, however, I believe it was also to show that Israel's complacency, like I know it looks awful and it looks like they've achieved nothing, but Israel is meant to be 
this superpower, this security state that actually exports its security to the rest of the world because they have a tried and tested way of saying, look, we've got the Palestinians to be restive. They're not doing anything to us. And they kind of train uh, US police forces and like vice versa. And they export technologies to other people. And all of this is just gone. And it has a psychological effect on Israel as well. Because when this happened during Yom Kippur in 1973, I believe, it also just, it made Israelis worried because Israel, you know, Israel is meant to be this state that keeps Jewish people safe. However, they failed so badly in spite of the fact that they have the Palestinians hemmed into the Gaza Strip, that they can't leave, that they monitor everything, that they have one of the most advanced security systems, but they failed to keep it in. And I think that Gideon Levy wrote an article uh, almost instantaneously after this happened. He's a very significant Israeli journalist for Haaretz. And he said... This is the blowback of what happens when you keep two million people in an open-air prison. And, you know, it's very much like, it may seem that nothing has been achieved in the destruction that Israel is doing, but that's part and parcel of how Israel behaves. Even if the Palestinians hadn't done this, it's quite, you know, they've run bombing, bombing campaigns like this. It's just this one is so grotesquely violent, I think. So as we're sort of discussing this, I feel like you've sort of conflated between, you've referred to sort of, Israel and also like the Israeli government, how important is it to keep sort of Israeli uh, citizens separate from the Israeli government when talking about Israel and Palestine? So keeping Israelis separate from their government, in a sense, is important. We can't generalise that all Israeli people are like that because there are peace movements and there have been people who tried to fight against the state of Israel. I don't think ever like, you know, actually taking up arms, but in terms of resisting it and using their privilege as a Jewish Israeli person to fight for Palestinians. There's a woman called Felicia Langer who in the 1970s really tried to expose the torture that Israel did and she would always defend uh, people who refused to serve in the Israeli army. But that's, that's a big part of it, you know. A lot of people serve in the Israeli army and a lot of people benefit from the oppression of the Palestinians and the Israeli state is built off the ashes of what was historic Palestine, basically. And so... Of course, you have to keep people separate and not generalize and not say all Israelis are horrendous people. But a lot of them do support this kind of stuff. You know, Israel has massive problems with racism. It's undeniable. You know, we saw a a lot of people didn't see it. But at the Netanya College inside Israel proper, Zionists found out that there were Palestinians inside this college or Arabs even. And they were just outside chanting death to Arabs. The police are there and they let them do all of this stuff. And this is kind of like the problem. Israel has a massive racism issue and this extends to other people as well. So in terms of separating Israelis from the government, it is impossible to separate settlers, particularly male settlers in the West Bank, from the Israeli government. Patrick Wolf talks about it. In terms of settler colonial theory, if you have a state that is constantly expanding into an indigenous or a native people's territory and you have a settler militia that isn't really like your army, but they still expand into uh, into the land and they are protected by the army. Effectively, that person becomes a like a some. I, I saw someone call it a racial shock troop because they just go round and they are racist. And honestly, these people are basically a private militia of the state of Israel, and especially right now because Itamar Ben Gavir, the minister of national security, has been arming them and giving out guns. In fact, the U.S. almost had to stop 
be sending guns to Israel because he kept giving them out at like political rallies to just random people. And what kind of guns are we talking about? I like uh, assault rifle kind of weapons right, and okay. like whatever people want. Yeah. And these people, these rifles are being used to murder Palestinians. I think there's about a hundred plus who've been killed in the West Bank since October the 7th and that there, there is no Hamas here. And some, most of those are um, done by the Israeli army, but also settlers are just doing person to person murder. In fact, a Palestinian person that I know, a settler just lives on her family's land. He just lives there. He won't leave and they, like, he will not leave. He's been there for years and he's horrible. He throws rocks at them if they go nearby. And more generally, this is kind of like standard behavior. There's a lot of organizations and these people are extremists. But more generally, I, there is obviously an amount of Israeli people who reject the occupation, who reject apartheid. And those are the people who I think that you have to keep separate. But anyone who is just outright supporting the state of Israel in really any capacity, in my opinion, is, you know, they, they are part and parcel because they enjoy and they profit from the apartheid because they're an Israeli person in the same way that I think that any Afrikaner who's like very much engaged in enjoying the privileges of apartheid is, you know, complicit. And I don't feel that their behavior is that separate from the state because the state of Israel needs these people. It needs to settle this land, you know. So obviously we've kind of, as this conflict um, engaged, actually that's another thing I want to put your points, uh, ask you about. You have repeatedly said in your videos that we should not be, we should not refer to what is going on between Israel and Palestine as a conflict. Why is that? So you can kind of look at this in two different ways, which is the fact that Israel is an occupational force and that's the root of the issue. They occupy Palestine and this places them in an aggressive position already. So we haven't seen like a conflict or a war kick off really. What we're seeing is an extension of something that, well, the creation of the state of Israel in 1948 and even before that, the Zionist project. And so that's why some people wouldn't call it a conflict. But also a lot of people refer to the equal footing part. The fact that, you know, the, the war, the war reporting, basically, Palestinians have never really had like an official militia or an arm. Well, an army. They've never had a standing army. This has been a thing since Britain was there. Britain allowed... First of all, the Irgun and the Palmach, which are like, were like a, a force of really highly trained Israelis by the British. But they let these people develop and they knew that there was another organization called the Stern Gang, which was just a terrorist organization that they allowed to operate underground. And all of this was denied to the Palestinians at the same time when the British ruled Palestine as a mandate or we didn't. Yeah, when, when, when it was a mandate. And... This is basically why people would refer to it as not a conflict, because there's never been like a Palestinian army. It's just people who take up arms, really. And obviously they get funding from Iran and Iran loves to, you know, get involved. And there's other countries who pay money to these people because they want to destabilize Israel. But even Israel gives them money, you know, but they're just not a real army or a militia or not a real army i think is the better way to phrase it another aspect i've seen people refer to is the fact that say in the west bank no not the west bank sorry um in the gaza strip for example the fact that the israeli government has the ability to withhold power and water from those from that area that would almost kind of imply that it's not a sort of you don't hear in many cases of conflicts where that is something that can be done yeah of course of course and like just on the topic of that that's a really egregious war crime you know because with genocide and stuff, people love to make excuses for it. And they're like, oh, a lot of people died of sickness. You'll notice this with the Native Americans. They're like, oh, well, the European settlers, it was just from the interaction. But they waged a genocidal war, which destroyed these people's ways of life because they used to exist via game management. They were hemmed into smaller spaces. They were more generally, you know, attacked and beleaguered because of this. 
And so you get a situation where disease and all of this illness is gonna start spreading. You can't use it as an excuse. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, a historian, talks about this, and she mentions it with regards to the Holocaust. It is literally Holocaust denialism to pretend that disease and you know malnutrition, I think they call it privation, which is just deprivation of like taking things away from people. And that's exactly what Israel's doing there. And it, you know, it's terrorizing a civilian population and trying to make them, it's ethnically cleansing them. And that's part of it. And cutting off water and cutting off these things to people is an abhorrent war crime. I was reading today that now the sickness is starting to set in. Someone was reporting about their son had like a stomach bug. And yeah, it was, they said that it could lead to kidney failure. And we're going to probably see a lot of people start dying from not even direct violence, from what Israel has done to the environment there. Because they've, they have, you will see this in like what, uh, international human rights organizations are saying they are like the situation is degrading very quickly and it's abhorrent you know but people are very resilient as well uh, so the response from the west to what is going on between Israel and Palestine what have you made of it it's bog standard really people Israel's a massive part of our like the West's geopolitical interests in the Middle East. It's very good for like keeping Iran in check and like power balances more generally, and also just yeah protecting the Suez Canal and serving interests of the West. And this is why it's not surprising what's happened to me at all, and like how unequivocally they support them because it just serves our interests and the mess that would come with. And by mess, I mean mean in terms of like having to work through. The, the situation of like f improving the Palestinians' life materially is just not in Western interest. They would much rather just support the state of Israel because it does what they want in terms of like Middle Eastern geopolitics. And also it's a great cash cow. I think I saw someone talking about the CEO of Raytheon uh, literally saying that this is great for them. You know, it's an arms manufacturing company. It's, it's part of the military industrial complex. Israel is a massive exporter of weapons and also a massive buyer of weapons. And so the response hasn't been surprising, but it's just been more worrying, I think, in the state of British politics. is It was already getting pretty shambolic. You know, we've seen both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer on the trans issue basically give the same opinion. And it's just becoming more and more clear that there is no choice. I know that this has been actually a thing for a longer time. And we saw a, a massive war hawk in Tony Blair who followed Iraq into a disastrous and completely false invasion of Iraq. And so, in a sense, it's very upsetting. It's just very hard to feel like I can vote because how do I vote for someone who supports genocide? I just thought, I thought Labour would have taken a position that was more ceasefire because, personally, a ceasefire is what we need and I would never, ever, ever want to contradict that because there are people right now in Gaza who are dying and talking about the politics which I'm interested in right now is, is not appropriate in terms of saying, no, no, there shouldn't be a ceasefire because we need to talk about Israeli settler colonialism, not this specific event. Well, what Labour have proposed is, or particularly what Starmer is now proposing, is a humanitarian truce. How is that different from a ceasefire? Seemingly, in my understanding, this humanitarian truce is just like a really short pause, whereas the ceasefire is binding of like, don't actually attack each other. I assume with the truce, they will just decide a certain amount of days and then they'll just resume bombing, which to me is, you know, absolutely ridiculous. Like, oh, have a bit of food and now we're just going to yeah. continue bombing you. And it's to me, a humanitarian truce is a bit like imagine a football match player gets injured. The physio comes on, make sure the player is OK, potentially takes them off. New player comes on the game continues. That's mm. to me, is how a humanitarian truce would yeah, work. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and 
there was a lot of people who were like, oh, Hamas will use it to stockpile weapons and do all of this stuff. Somehow I don't think they will because it would probably be very hard to get in because Egypt is, you know, uh, people don't really know how much Egypt is so not massively support. They're not like, Egyptian people are not massively supportive of, of, supportive of Israel, but Egypt still plays a role. You know, the Rafah crossing is closed for a reason. Like they, they don't, they don't. Why is it closed, sorry? The what, Rafah what crossing, reason is that? It's seemingly because Israel doesn't want to let in aid, really. Israel doesn't want to let it in because the amount of aid you have to let in is massive. But also, Egypt is never really that keen on Palestinians going there. And people view this as because Palestinians are troublemakers and that they don't like them. But that's just, that's just racism. The real reason is because Egypt has a, an unelected dictator, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, who's happily killed protesters. In fact, this, the one very bizarre thing is people really don't know about this. But in 2013, during the, uh, there was a massacre in Rabat in Egypt where Sisi just killed a thousand plus people. It's the most documented massacre. In fact, I think a Sky News person was killed there. You can watch the videos and you can see them talking and they're literally like, we're going to be shot or we're being shot at. They're laid down on a roof because they were given carte blanche uh, support to shoot anyone who was there, the Egyptian military. And anyway, he cares very much about the stability of his own country. So importing loads of Palestinians is awful for them. And also it's a betrayal of the Palestinian people because what people forget is that the issue of Palestine is, relates to refugees and people being expelled from their homes. And so Egypt taking all of those people is a terrible idea for Egypt because they would bring in, you know, maybe a million people who are like, you have fundamentally betrayed us. And then the population says, you have betrayed us. And those protests which start about something else for autocratic dictators are bad, you know, because they can snowball into more of a critique of the regime. And 2011, the Arab Spring really showed that, you know, that can very quickly happen. So you just mentioned Egypt. Obviously, the King of Jordan said they wouldn't be accepting any Palestinian refugees. What's going on on that front? Is there coordination going on? People, so very often, I can't remember where I read it, but very often it's not talked about. But Jordan is complicit in what Israel does because they control a border as well and they share security information with the state of Israel. Jordan's relationship with Israel is something that people really don't know about because very often Israel paints this idea of all of the Arab states around it being entirely against it. And to an extent, public opinion, yeah, that's 100% true. A lot of the public hate Israel. But a lot of these places, they're motivated by pragmatism. And the King of Jordan, he kind of wanted to control the West Bank and annex it for himself. But once that kind of went away, you know, he's, he's happy with the Palestinians being there. Because again, it's a kingdom and betraying the Palestinian people in that way would be awful for, you know, uh, for, uh, for, the, for King Abdullah. And... More generally, this is kind of the case throughout the Middle East. Like you've seen this with Saudi Arabia wanting to normalize recently in terms of Mohammed bin Salman does this out of pragmatism, MBS. He, he, he doesn't do it because he loves Israel. He does it because he wants investment and he wants to be closer to the United States. So that's why they coordinate because they all have geopolitical aims and they're all motivated by pragmatism. So the status quo in the Middle East, which is an oppressive Israel and Palestinians being calm is generally good for their countries and also we saw it and it's not really snowballed into anything but quite quickly you saw like protests engulfing Tunisia engulfing um in in Jordan as well and this scares them protests in relation to what in in relation to the just the situation in Gaza right now like as the in, bombing of Gaza okay okay so they're against it and yeah. they want their governments to do more but these what you what always just has to be noted is these things sometimes go from 
being about Palestinians to being about why are you an un why are you unelected? Why do you not treat your people very well? And also, why have you done this? To why can't you support the Palestinians? Because public opinion is in everywhere is always very favourable of. Palestinians, except bizarrely, maybe for Iran. We would never really know because it's an authoritarian country, but a lot of Iranians really don't like Hamas because Iran pours loads of money into it, whilst Iran really struggles. So, Speaking of public opinion, I've got a report here from Sky News. It says more than 300% more than increase in anti-Semitic incidences in, in the UK since Hamas attack on Israel, according to the CST. What do you think has contributed to that? I would just like to first of all say that I saw, I've seen much higher figures from... That's, that's kind so I've uh, got another one here written in The Guardian that says anti-Semitic hate crimes in London up 1,350% according to the Met Police. Uh, and then with Islamophobic offences in London, it's risen by 140%. So we'll start with anti-Semitism. What do you think's contributed to the rise in anti-Semitism in the UK? It's, it's complex because I think in part people have a very visceral reaction to what they're seeing in Palestine if they are a Palestinian person, if they are someone who feels linked to Palestine. And this can lead people to being incredibly angry and doing things that are just, you know, crossing a line where it's just like, don't do that, it's unacceptable. It's like not smashing in windows of Jewish restaurants, the, for example. The only thing with that is that was not a hate crime, that was a burglary, actually. It was in Golders Green. Like, that is a confirmed thing, by the way, just, just to note on that one. Um, but that that's not to say that they haven't been happening. So... What I think it links to is, first of all, that, like people having this very visceral reaction, and then also the element of conflating Israel with Jewish people. It's kind of bizarre because on the one hand, you have right-wing Israelis and right-wing Jewish people in the UK, like Jake Wallace-Simons. I don't know if you know who he is, but I'm he's familiar. a conservative I'm, I'm familiar figure, with yeah. his name, yeah. And what they do is they're like, Jewish people are all represented by the state of Israel. And... This is also like the opinion of people who are kind of racist as well, or anti-Semitic because they're like, Israel's worst actions represent the Jewish people as a whole and they're all bad for this. And you have conflating it in either way is wrong because you see so many Jewish people. You know, when I don't know if you went to any of the protests. I've in seen London. footage from the protests. Yeah, I've, there's I've, lots yeah. of people who are just like, I am the son of a Holocaust survivor. One of my close friends, you know, she's Jewish and massively pro-Palestinian. And you find all of these people. There is no congruency between supporting Palestine and being anti-Semitic. However, there are people who are anti-Semitic and... Some of these people are just outright awful, but you will also see people who are anti-Semites who can support Israel as well because they don't like Muslims and, or, they, or they don't like people from... They don't like Arabs. Yeah, uh, like, they yeah, don't yeah. like Arabs yeah. is basically the, the, the crux of it. They yeah. don't like Arabs. So you see a lot of right-wing figures who, you know, I would disdain as a bigot and are even anti-Semitic in of themselves who just adore Israel. So you see this in Tommy Robinson and Nigel Farage are both two big figures who are very frequent in terms of their support or like very ardent in their support for Israel. And so when they're like, oh, these are anti-Semitic hate marches, I think the presence of Jewish people and the fact that, you know, Jewish people feel comfortable to be there and that realistically, I know that there are some people who are bad faith actors at those protests. I think some of the things that happen at them, people, you know, we need to be talking about yeah. them. So what, what are those people, just so people know who are listening, if they're going to attend a pro-Palestine demo, who they should be avoiding? People who are just clearly chanting things that are, you know, meant to offend Jewish people. Like, I, I don't like really... Like what? So the From the River to the Sea is not one that I buy in, even in the Arabic version, because one of the things that Palestinians like to be conscious of is the fact that 
Returning to the 1967 borders and ending the occupation of Palestine, that's really important to materially improve people's lives. However, people who were just expelled in 1948 and the stories of the ethnic cleansing are abhorrent. You know, there was a thing called the Lida death marches where like hundreds of people were just, they were told you have to leave. And it was like 60,000 of them and 200, 300, maybe more all just died on the road. And then they were looted by the Israeli soldiers as well, according to eyewitnesses of it. And so I don't have a problem with that. It's about, because it's about people returning to, you know, it's about people returning to the whole of Palestine. And this doesn't mean getting rid of Jewish people. It's very telling that Zionists and racists like... Yeah, well, I'll read you about with the statement about uh, from the river to the sea. So the American Jewish community and the Anti-Defamation League, they talk about from the river to the sea chart and they say it calls for the establishment of a state of Palestine from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, erasing the state of Israel and its people. There's also a rallying cry for terrorist groups and their sympathizers from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine to Hamas, which called for Israel's destruction in its original governing charter in 1988. It is an anti-Semitic charge denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, including through the removal of Jews from their ancestral homeland. I just don't really buy into anything that the ADL says. I'm not going to lie. I think it's a very... Uh, Mohammed El Kurd called it the Apartheid Defence League because that's what they get up to. I'm pretty sure you know libs of TikTok, uh, yeah. Chaira Chick. She got her name removed from that and she's literally caused like bomb threats, like actually a lot of terrorists and white supremacist terrorists follow her yeah. and they capitulated to her who was just like, I'm not this, I'm not that, when she has you know, participated within that space that is about spreading anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And I think anti-Semitism is such a serious issue that we have to be talking about. I just hate it when it's done in this bad faith way because I know that all of us can say or do bigoted things that, you know, human beings... Unconscious bias. Yes, but we also speak before we think and we can just say things that might offend a Jewish person. But more generally, I know what my politics are and I don't want Jewish people to be expelled from Palestine. There will be people who think that. But also when... Uh, when apartheid ended, obviously, you know, you ended up with the Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress. But there was a movement that was just called One Settler, One Bullet. And their position was, they have to go and we'll kill them. It didn't win out because it's not practical. And many people will talk about this. They'll reference like Algeria, where the majority of the French settlers left. But that was a very different scenario. Israelis are settler colonists. So this means that like the project is about becoming and transforming into an Israeli person because before this, you know, Jewish people were diasporic. And so I don't deny Jewish people the right to live there. And I don't think the majority of my friends, the people I'm around, would ever advocate for expelling Jewish people. It's just they want to do it in this way and they want to associate it with anti-Semitism because it discredits the pro-Palestinian movement because if you're an anti-Semite, how could, you, how could you, anything you say be worth hearing? And the truth is, is, yeah, we have to be conscious of it. And that's why I always worry about when I'm like Jake Wallace-Simons, the Anti-Defamation League, they're all bad faith actors because I don't think that people who talk about anti-Semitism, who talk about, you know, Jewish people being threatened, like the thing that happened in Dagestan, like I think it was played up in a sense that like all of the organizations focused on it, but they would not focus on the, uh, the attack on the Arab student in, or the Arab students inside Israel, because obviously Dagestan is a country in like, uh, Asia. Yeah, it's Asia, like Asia. It'll be, I think, I assume it will be in the Asian part of Russia, but, um, so, you know, that's that, but it was still abhorrent. It was still absolutely abhorrent. And I saw people who were like, that's the welcome that Israelis should get. And I was like, I can actually understand the boycott of saying we don't want Israeli planes to come here because, you know, a lot of people have problems with the state as a whole. 
But saying that that is a welcome that people deserved is is not in my opinion because I saw the video of you know the guy who they're like are you Jewish the Uzbek guy and it's just like. Jesus Christ, like watching a human being go through that. This is part of the stuff that we're advocating against in Palestine. You know, Israeli soldiers having the power to abuse and do as they see fit with Palestinians. And if I don't like that with Palestinians, why do I think that that should happen to Jewish people? You mentioned with the boycotting of Israeli planes landing in countries. Is that not just conflating Israeli people with the Israeli government? In a sense, yes, but it targets a political people. It's uh, people don't realize how powerful boycott like that is. Not really blocking planes would be a bit. Yeah, I think it would be too difficult. It, it would never be done. But one of the things that's referenced with South Africa is the power of sport, and in a sense, it would be conflating. You know, people who have done nothing wrong as just an Afrikaner person who just loved sport, maybe who's even. Well, we've seen it with Russia with the World Olympic uh, Committee mm. um, within uh, Russian football teams being banned from yeah. UEFA competitions, uh, Russia being banned from participating in um, the World Cup or other uh, sporting events like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's actually a really powerful tool. It's like, it means that, you know, when they, when they banned Russians, I think the one thing is, is it wasn't like, everywhere we did it here but i don't think america did it because i think medvedev didn't play at wimbledon but played in america i'm pretty sure but i'm not 100 but anyway uh as as like a tool it just targets apolitical people and it's not about conflating all israelis with the state but it's just about someone who's like oh i really like sports and i kind of like israel but that person may think hang on a second why am i not allowed to go and enjoy something you know it's it has a way of targeting apolitical that the way that I speak and the way that a lot of content creators just will never be able to do because it can end up becoming preaching to the choir in a sense. Of- I guess with the sense of boycotts that you've, you've mentioned, and, and I think, again, I think kind of comparing what's been going on between Russia and Ukraine and between Israel and Palestine, particularly in relation to the boycotts, when um, Russian uh, athletes were and sport teams were being banned from participating in certain competitions, in the UK, for example, it was very much like, yep, yeah, that's the right thing to do 100%. Yeah, if we were to say that um, Maccabi Tel Aviv, uh, Tel Aviv were banned from participating in, like, the cha- I think, are they in the Champions League at the moment? If they were banned from, let's say they were banned from, like, playing in UEFA competitions. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of people in this country would probably say, oh, that's not really, that's probably not a good idea. Yeah, people, so, people would say that that's somehow anti-Semitic and that, you know, that would be the, just the straight defence. But as I said, it's a really powerful tool. And you're completely right that there is this complete incongruency with everything with regards to Palestine and with regards to uh, Ukraine. You know, what's happening in Palestine is so incredibly simple and so black and white. And I know people will be like, you need expertise, but you actually don't. And it's sometimes something that I'm conscious of with the content that I make. Because intellectualizing this and making it a thing about showing off how clever you are and like knowing everything can lead people to believe that they don't have the ability to speak on it. But the thing is, is it's black and white that taking people's land is wrong. And this is the root cause of the problem. And territorial expansionism normally accompanies genocide and like violence. And that's exactly what Israel does. And they expand. And so this difference, it doesn't make sense because this is not more sensitive politically and that's normally the excuse people will give but what does that mean russia and ukraine is inherently a political thing as well that you know has stuff to do with politics that goes back to the cold war and like russia as the eternal enemy of the west and so that's that's theoretically just as complicated but it's very shameful like a good example is my university uh, exeter offered unequivocal 
support to Ukraine. They reached out instantaneously. They were like, anyone affected? And in their statement on Palestine, they did not mention Palestine. And they were like, you will see loads of organizations that are like, we don't want to take a side now. Yeah, well, we've noticed that, especially with uh, the showing of Ukrainian flags in football stadiums, for example. So when um, October 7th, happened there was a lot of uh, debate and discussion as to whether the Wembley Arch was going to be lit in the colours of the Israeli flag they then decided we're not going to do that we're also not going to we're going to ban uh, Palestinian or Israeli flags from the stadium and then I'm sure people may have seen this footage of uh, Anfield when a steward said to someone holding up a Palestinian flag look you got to put it down and the guy says well what about with Ukraine the steward to his credit agreed with him he's just doing his job and we shouldn't blame people in that case um something we often hear and I feel like people say this a lot about Israel-Palestine, is you've kind of touched on this. It's too complicated. I don't know what to think. What do you say to those people? As I said, it's just, it's black and white. Taking land from other people, they just, people do not get, I, I can't remember who the exact quote comes from, but someone said, people do not give up their collective inheritance for free. You can look to every example of settler colonialism, whether that's the Native Americans, the people in Can the indigenous people of Canada, the Aboriginals, all of them tried to resist in some capacity. And that's why it's so simple to me, because oppression and this force of settler colonialism, taking something by force and seeking to eliminate the indigenous population or native population that's there, that's why it's so simple to me. And I know people are like, oh, well, there's history and Israel has this claim. But as I said, in the settler colonial dynamic, it doesn't matter if you think that you deserve this land more than someone else. It's about taking the land, because if we take Israel's claim, obviously it's different in a sense, but the Americans who settled uh, the Americas, the, well, the Europeans who settled the Americas, they too believed in manifest destiny, that they had the God-given right, that this land was theirs, that they were the ones who needed to cultivate it and, you know, make it, make it bloom, which is exactly what you see in the same thing as Israel. And this is why I believe it's so simple, because as I've read more and educated myself constantly, all it feels like is... I've got back to the same position that I was at when I first read about this, that this is about land, that this is the most hotly contested land in probably the entire world right now, and has been for like, you know, since really the dawn of the 20th century. And for people wanting to read and educate themselves on Israel-Palestine, where do you suggest they start? Decolonize Palestine, 100%. So... Decolonized Palestine is just a website that addresses lots of Zionist myths. It's really beautifully made. It looks fantastic. And you can, yeah, you can find resources on there that are also categorized in terms of, okay, you want to learn about this thing, uh, maybe pre-1948 or 1948 and to 67. And you can learn about all of these things. But more generally, as I said earlier, the book on Palestine by Noam Chomsky and Ilan Pape, it's not perfect. It's not the best book ever written, and it was written about 10 years ago. But it's a really good starting point because it's a conversation between Ilan Pape, a very significant Israeli historian who lives in Israel, has spent his entire life there, who is very pro-Palestinian. You were and taught by him. Yeah, 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 I was taught by Ilan. Ne he never, like, supervised my work, but I've done modules with him, basically. Okay. And okay. he's like a... He's friendly with a lot of the people that I know, like a lot of the people that are sort of around the university. But um, this conversation between the two of them and just the things that they cover, it's a very good starting point because it's an easy read because it's not just like words and words and words on end. It's two people talking to each other and I just think it's very easy to read. But like in terms of niches and books that I really loved, uh, any work by Patrick Wolfe, but it's really hard to read, is the or some of it's very hard to read. Any work by Fire Sayer, is really good. There's a book called Zionism and Colonialism, which is available free online. 
and reading Palestinians and listening to what they say, because they said a lot of this stuff very early, you know, they said it even before the Israelis were saying it, but sometimes the Israelis get a lot more credit. And this is something that Ilan Pape would be conscious of. He's referred to as a new historian, but the history they rewrote for Israel was actually just what the Palestinians were saying was true. And it turned out that the archives were on the side of the Palestinians. And so with this, uh, as the situation between Israel and Palestine unfolds, a lot of people now turn to social media to get their information. And a lot of people have turned to you. Your following is what, tripled? Tripled, in the, yeah. In the last, what, three weeks? Somewhere like yeah, that? Yeah, three weeks. So clearly you're seen as a, as a source of information and people clearly go to you for uh, reliable uh, information about what's going on between Israel and Palestine. How do you make sure that the information that you're presenting is, to the best of your knowledge, 100% accurate? <laughs> So, first of all, if I ever make a video about a specific topic, I'll generally read something. Sometimes it's just rereading my notes that I've already made on a book that I thought was, like, perfect on it. But I'll always look back to the books that I've read and I'll be like, okay, I'll just search something in my in my Google Docs. I'll be like, uh, I don't know, uh, apartheid. And then I'll look through what I've read about apartheid. And I make sure that I sort of look through everything there. Occasionally, I make mistakes in my videos, but I think that that actually just relates to them not being so professional, if you know what okay. I mean. Like, when I say mistakes, it's more like I'll say something that's, like, not untrue, but maybe I'll just get the year and date wrong. Or, right, okay. Like, in a video recently I made about uh, new uh, torture, I said in the 1980s. It was in the 1970s. Okay, But the, right. I, like, I try and put articles in and, like, keep people aware of... If I, ever cite, if I ever say something, I cite it, except for a couple of things. I've kind of... I'd stop citing the apartheid thing because I think that, you know, it's if you just Google Israeli apartheid, you will find Amnesty International, you will find Betzalem, an Israeli organization. And someone said, even if people deny it, the term no smoke without a fire applies. There is a reason that Amnesty International is saying your society is doing something wrong. But in terms of being a content creator, I think that this has taught me something that you shouldn't cover breaking news. And this is something that Hassan Piker speaks about. He's like, I don't cover breaking news normally. And obviously he's done it in certain contexts. But with the Al-Ahli hospital, now obviously it seemed almost instantaneously, and I think the evidence in my opinion, my personal opinion, because the UK government have only said what they know is opinion, You or they said likely that Israel bombed the hospital. Uh, sorry, that Palestinians bombed the hospital. However, you know, instantaneously it all seemed that it was that way. There was an Israeli official who tweeted about them bombing the hospital and then deleted it. Uh, and also the evidence that they were posting, very, very shaky. But anyway, because I said that instantaneously, it just opens you up to a criticism where people are like, you're lying for a specific reason. Yeah, of course. And I wasn't, because when I made that video, it was just like, Jesus Christ, the misery. It's an, it's an emotive response, right? Yeah, and I think that just being conscious of that kind of stuff, because by making that video, you also open yourself up to just buying into the Israeli narrative that we're all, or like the Zionist narrative, that we're all liars, that we do this disingenuously, and we're bad faith actors who want yeah. to harm Jewish people and harm the state of Israel. But that's, that's not what it's about, and that's why I'm just conscious. And yeah, just to say, I, I do still believe personally that Israel did do it. I think if you're bombing loads of other hospitals and have continued to bomb loads of other hospitals at this point, I think it's kind of like, yeah, you're waging a genocidal bombing campaign where you've shown complete disregard for civilian and any life at all. So my, my opinion is, yeah, it's very much like I should. we have to be careful and we must be conscious of, we must always be conscious of what we're saying is like factual. We give our opinion because we're not, also it's a very big power that we have over mainstream media because 
Mainstream media has to make sure that every single thing that they do is 100% correct in terms of like most reporting. Yeah. Some some things with with Israel and actually with regards to like the, the stuff that the US gets up to in terms of other countries, they definitely don't tell 100% of the truth. But you know, they're, they're held by an editing line. Yes. Whereas we're not. Yeah. And it is a power in a sense, but it's also a thing of be careful in what we're doing. And I don't think, I think reporting breaking news is the issue basically. So with the response from the two main political parties in the UK, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, in response to Israel-Palestine, there have been two uh, MPs, uh, Paul Bristow from the Conservatives, Andy MacDonald from the Labour Party, who uh, Paul Bristow was removed from his position, uh, was asked to leave his position in government because he called for a ceasefire. Andy MacDonald uh, uh, has had the whip suspended provisionally pending an investigation uh, into a speech that he gave at a pro-Palestine demo. Why do you think that there is so much rejection to the idea of a ceasefire between Israel and Palestine? Because... Israel has come up with this idea that, oh, we're going to destroy Hamas and critiquing that idea is basically very bad for the state of Israel. And Israel's, it's not as stable as people might think. Like it, it's a very, it's, it's a more stable nation than the majority of Middle Eastern countries like that. That's just true. But also Benjamin Netanyahu is deeply unpopular. The other day he blamed his, uh, he blamed his security chiefs for what happened on October the 7th and this very much caused the problem. You know, people are more angry and senior figures are becoming more and more angry with this guy. And so I think that our government wants to be very careful about like not offering unequivocal support to the state of Israel, basically. It's not about like, it's not about them not actually thinking that a ceasefire is a good idea. It's just that they are so like, they are so linked to the state of Israel. First of all, as you will probably know, the Labour Party was purged of a considerable number of pro-Palestinian voices. Al Jazeera's The Labour Files document the way in which this was incredibly sinister because Jeremy Corbyn was smeared, especially in my opinion. I believe 100% that he was smeared because I think Labour 100% could have had a problem with or did have a problem with anti-Semitism. However, what they would do is completely ignore the party's problems with Islamophobia to make it seem as if the pro-Palestinian well, this I refers probably... to the for, uh, what the Ford report said about like the hierarchy of racism. Yeah. Just on that point, though, there was polling that showed that eighty-five percent of British Jews fear Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister. Why do you think that was? You know, you've got to see. There is like there was a concerted effort to manufacture propaganda about him and to paint him as like the most evil guy, and that's going to affect people. And Jewish people, Jewish people obviously have an anxiety for a very real reason, and this is like back to the anti-Semitism thing, and why like I'm conscious of it because I. I despise what like right-wing figures like Jake Wallace-Simons do because I know that they're bigots at heart. But there's also this element of the Holocaust happened and all of these things that happened to Jewish people long before the Holocaust happened. And we must be conscious of fighting against that. And so, yeah, that, that's... But on, on that Corbyn point just then, I mean, there's rep- uh, documented cases where he referred to Hamas and Hezbollah as being his friends, praising the artist of an anti-Semitic mural. Surely this stuff doesn't help the case of trying to say that Jeremy Corbyn isn't an anti-Semite. For the record, I don't think that he's an anti-Semite, but I understand why people might think that he is. I uh, So someone said that he addressed a whole room when he did the friends or said that they're his friends. With regards to that, as I've said before... I, I am very clear that negotiation is the only way forward. And people will be like, you cannot negotiate with evil Hamas. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot. But they said that they would never le- negotiate with the Palestinian Liberation Organization, who now rule the Palestinian Authority and have abandoned armed struggle. They were going around hijacking planes in the 70s and just fighting wars and like fighting frequently with the state of Israel. So I, I really agree with what he did there. 
and I don't agree with the friends thing. Like, I agree. I, I, I think that that's the way forward. Maybe not calling these people your friends because they're still very much zealots and they don't... Like, the whole thing is, is they don't really subscribe to the same worldview as me, so why would I support these organisations? But anyway, on his behaviour, you, I have, I have to agree with you that there are some times where I was just like, why are you doing these things? And, like, there's an, intru- there's an interview with Andrew Neil as well where he keeps asking him to condemn anti-Semitism, and I don't know if it was the media training... He said... That to- so yeah, so I know this case. What he he was asked, do you condemn anti-Semitism? Yeah. It happened on this morning as well, which I think stop interviewing politicians on this morning. Yeah. Um. He was said. Um. He was asked, do you condemn anti-Semitism? And he said, I condemn racism in all its forms. And yeah. it's like, well, that's great, Jeremy. But you're asking, you're being asked specifically about anti-Semitism, and it it doesn't take. Uh, it's not hard to say I condemn anti-Semitism. And and the thing is, is during that interview, he even says it because Andrew Neil keeps on asking him, and I, I don't like Andrew Neil by the way, but he keeps on asking him over and over again. And then he mutters it once, or like says it once, and Andrew Neil clearly doesn't hear, hear it, but he won't say it again. And it was just, it was, yeah, he, did, he definitely did some damage to himself. And many British Jewish people really do not like Jeremy Corbyn. Um, however, I mean, right now, I think e- even in terms of British Jewish people, he would be a, a much better politician, apart from the right-wing conservatives. But uh, uh, r- like newspapers like the Jewish Chronicle in certain areas of London with high Jewish population, that's everywhere. And it's like a very right-wing newspaper, you know. It, like Jake Wallace-Simons frequently refers to Palestinians as savages, which is incredibly racist, but people just aren't really aware of like the depth of or what that really is, like demonising human beings in that way. So as we're, we're seeing this sort of crisis in Israel-Palestine unfold, what is the most effective way that UK citizens can help Palestinian people? It's being on the street, like t- shouting about it, you know, not necessarily just in the street. I, I once asked a Palestinian person this a couple of years ago and I was like, what could I actually do to help? And he went, is your father a racist? And I was like, no. And he was like, are your family racist? And I was like, no. And he was like, if they were, convince them change their mind, make them think about Palestine in a different way. So we can affect those who are around us, we can try and push these things, and if people who are younger in school or university, try and see if there's any organisation going on in your university. Look at your local Palestine solidarity campaign, see if your university has a Friends of Palestine or Students for Justice in Palestine or any of these organisations and join up and support them. And obviously be careful and be conscious on the streets and don't don't engage in anti-Semitism because that's not what this is about and it's harmful to the movement more generally and it's not what anybody really wants to see. And it's harmful to Jewish people as well. Of course, of course. course. Yeah, yeah, of course. I feel, yeah, obviously. Obviously, no, 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 that's a good point to make, obviously. But like, yeah, it's of course harmful to Jewish people and like spiking anti-Semitism is not a good thing for anyone, but of course Jewish people. Um, But yeah, being on the street is just massive because already we've seen the government policy soften a lot. They played this whole scare tactic game where James Cleverly came out and said, stay at home. Suella Braverman said, waving a Palestinian flag may not be legitimate. She's like, I'm meeting Cobra. But you will start to notice that all of these unhinged statements are made on people's personal accounts by politicians. They're never made by like higher up, higher up official accounts. When she yeah. was on the Met Police video or wherever that video was of her the other day, she did not say that it was anti-Semitic. She was like, you know my opinion on this. Well, she's recently, she's referred to pro-Palestine marches as being hate marches mm-hmm, uh, just mm-hmm. the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's all they can do. They can smear them and they can make it scary to go to them. But just go, just go. And even if, like, look, just go, just go and behave normally and go and show that you support Palestine. Don't cause trouble. And that extends beyond being anti-Semitic. Like, just don't cause trouble. There's, there's a, there were some other things going on at the protest where I was just like, Jesus Christ, like, 
I'm not sure why this this is happening right now. Like using fireworks at a protest, I'm not too fond of it. I yeah. think that uh, especially for people who who have been through, you know. And um, what other ways? Sort of like, is there sort of donations? Is there petitions? How effective is that sort of stuff? Petitions to help people who've lost their jobs and stuff, and petitioning Parliament. You know, theoretically, it works. And we've seen this change in government policy, so whatever we're doing is right because these scare tactics have faded away. You know, for the first week at the protest I was at in Exeter, not many people were saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Then in London the next weekend, it was everywhere. Everyone was chanting it freely. And the, I don't know if you saw, but the Met Police were like running defence for the for the protesters. Like they were giving explanations to racists. They were like, actually, this is just talking about well, yeah yeah no I've, se- I, I've, I've seen that and I guess there's like the they, they have like officers that are there that are sort of flag specialists that are able yeah. to identify symbols that might cause problems yeah and I think that most of those I don't think you'd see any of the most extremist organizations having a flag there because I think that they'd be taken away instantly because of course you know, but um there I think that there are some that teeter on it and the government doesn't really have the power to deal with it basically they don't have this power to just arrest people randomly, which maybe they'll get in the future, but somehow I don't. Think well, I mean, the public order bill looks like it probably will be strengthened at a certain point in relation to this. There's one final question that I want to ask you. Something that is often mentioned in regards to Israel-Palestine is this idea of a two-state solution. In your honest opinion, and based off the work that you've read and, and heard, do you think that that is possible? Can Palestinians and Israeli people live together? I think they can live together in a one state, but the two-state solution is finished completely. It's ruined, it's over, uh, and Israel ruined it 100%. The PLO, uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, who went on to be Fatah, who ruled the West Bank, they were 100% on board with it. They did everything that Israel wanted. They recognized Israel's right to exist as a state, which is a unique thing because no state has a right to exist. And that's not about saying that Israel doesn't have it. It's about the fact of they're an abstract concept. So they don't, nothing has a right to exist in this world. But they accepted all of this stuff. And what they got in return is they were turned into a force that supports the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territory, that profits from it, that has created an upper class of people who are profiteers and you know capitalists who are enjoying the wealth of it and also the settlement is the biggest thing like since 67 there was a point right in the 70s where Menachem Begin Jimmy Carter was the president and Jimmy Carter was like one of the most one of the most pro-Palestinian presidents but that's really not saying that much you know it's like a very low bar to be pro-Palestinian but he he basically, he had this meeting with the Israelis and he thought that peace was going really well. So Yitzhak Rabin, who was actually the one who signed the Oslo Accords, he wrote in his personal diary, he was like, Yitzhak Rabin is a bad guy. He won't, he won't, he won't do anything. He's very stuck in his ways. And then he met Menachem Begin, who was the Likud leader, which is the party that Benjamin Netanyahu belongs to. And they're very successful in the Israeli elections and have been for a long time now. But he wrote, Menachem Begin seems great. He seems like he won't be, he'll actually move on issues and we might be able to get some peace. Two days later, Menachem Begin uh, authorizes a ton of new settlements in the West Bank. The Americans are very annoyed by this, but they can't do anything about it because they know that it is such an obstacle to peace because they're illegal under international law. They limit Palestinians' freedom of movement. They attack Palestinians regularly, the actual settlers, and they've destroyed the... Even things like the, how the water flows within the region, many of these settlements are built quickly through the use of like dynamite and explosives, and they disrupt the flow of water, which Palestinians in certain villages are reliant on. In some villages, they've built settlements that are 
a lot of them are built on hills, but they throw wastewater onto like Palestinian crops and like onto the village as a whole, because this means that the Palestinians can't sell the stuff that they have. And people are really forgetful about this. Like Bethlehem and Jerusalem before 1994, when the Oslo Accords were signed, they were really linked cities, but now it's really hard to go between them. They're not far from each other, but Israel has created this system where life is impossible as a Palestinian and the two-state solution would require the removal of all of these settlements. And also it's this sticking point of the right of return because Palestinians should be allowed to return, in my opinion, and Israel just won't allow it. And so you, you have to let them return. And it's because Israel's concerned about a demographic balance and these people were expelled from their homes, you know, and they've never been allowed to return. And as I said... Some of them live in Lebanon and they're never allowed to go back. And many people live here who are diasporic Palestinians who would probably much rather be in Palestine, but they can't be because of being expelled and never being allowed to return. And, you know, any Jewish person anywhere can return, whereas a Palestinian cannot. And it's like, how do you deal with these things? And the only way to do it is to form a state of both people, in my, in my opinion at least, to form a state of both people which is completely de-Zionized, where it doesn't privilege Jewish people over Palestinians, but also vice versa, that it's equally split. And this is dreaming, of course. This is a, a fantasy in a sense. But Israel was also people's dreams and fantasies in the, in the uh, 19th century. So why can't we dream as well? Why can't Palestine be free in this way? And I think that we have to work towards this. And in terms of the material ways, it's like ending the occupation, ending Israeli apartheid. And then we look at these things and talk about how this is done. And then people are like, oh, but what would the name of the state be? And it's like, I don't know. What, Israel, Palestine too, or something? Well, I guess if you look like uh, with Rhodesia, for example, which now became, which became called Zimbabwe, almost nobody refers to it as Rhodesia. Mm. Um, so there, there is that possible. That was actually going to be a question I was going to ask you. Yeah. They, um, so they, I guess, but yeah, I mean, but that one state, like, yeah. You could, I mean... Yeah, it's it's obviously that's like a hot a hot a hot topic, but also that's a detail. Like the much better thing is stopping the violence and stopping Israeli apartheid and oppression of Palestinian people. And by virtue of stopping that, you also stop Palestinian people resisting. Because it, going back to the in, I'll quickly just talk about the Intifada. Going back to the Intifada, the first one was largely non-violent, almost entirely non-violent. The organization was like people throwing stones at tanks. You can see photos of children. Uh, and in response, Yitzhak Rabin, who signed the Oslo Accords and won a Nobel Peace Prize, at the time he was some senior figure in government, he said, break their bones because we can't kill them. And he was talking about children. And they went and they broke Palestinian people's bones. They tortured people. They imprisoned them arbitrarily. And they just treated human beings terribly. And then you get a second intifada, which someone, which one of my lecturers referred to as men with guns. It becomes so violent because the first one is just met with brutal repression. And you see this with Gaza as well. They did the march of return where no one was violent and they walked to the border. And I think 200 of them were killed. And so many people were also maimed in ways that are really debilitating in the Gaza Strip because there's no or there's not good enough of medical course. care, so yeah. you just get stuff amputated. You know, someone I, someone I know was talking about, and they were just like, how many people do I know, having grown up in this place, who just don't have limbs, who are, like, destroyed because of what Israel has done to them? It's not just about death. It's about what happens to people as a consequence, also, of Israeli violence that we don't just see as death, you know? So I think that that's kind of, like, where the one-state solution has gone wrong. There's been, like, a massive radicalization because the violence has increased from both... Israelis and Palestinians and the second intifada also radicalized a lot of Israelis who were like 
we hate suicide bombings, you know, and the government says, oh, this is what Arabs are like and people buy it. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for coming on. on. Um, before you go, is there anything that you'd like to promote? Yeah, uh, follow my TikTok, Chris Kunzler, and uh, my Instagram, Chris K Middle East, if you want to see any of my content. Oh, and also my Twitter, which is just my name, Chris Kunzler. Uh, I post very frequently on Twitter. So if any of you are interested in seeing my stuff, just yeah, look at any of my socials. Also, in terms of places to donate, I would shout out the FQMS Gaza Emergency Appeal. It's a great organization. Okay, thank you. Um, and one final thing from us. Southwark Solidarity are organising a benefit called A Night for Gaza to raise donations for medical aid for Palestine. I'm going to be clear, it's not about getting political, it's about raising money for aid for innocent civilians. If you want to come along and support, the tickets are only between 10 to £25 and there'll be music and art as well. They're also looking for talented musicians and artists, so if you have a talent and want to support, please reach out. Keep an eye out on my socials and for show notes for more information. Thank you so much for watching. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please check out all the links available and uh, we will see you for the next episode. Thank you.